promote your Tell agenda and you're wrong. One second, one second, because we just heard for the president. Anna, Anna Wayne. It's okay to disagree. It's not okay to be mean. Yeah, I respectfully disagree. With I would respectfully disagree. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> you're you're, you're changing all life, but you're not answering my question. You're describing a baby. Are you stupid? I will not yield to the government. What's the deal with politics? Being agreeable, saying and doing things in a pleasant way. That's easy enough. Happening at the Chris, we're right talking now. about it the is war an abomination. Right it is an abomination. It's an abomination. I don't think you should have to hate to oppose uh, somebody, but mm -hmm. it's easier. You cut that out now, or you'll go home in an ambulance. Yeah, that seems mildly inappropriate for a political discussion. I don't know if you've noticed, but almost any discussion that drifts in the direction of politics, theology, gender, sexuality, climate change, economy, race, border security, build that wall, don't build that wall, immigration, let them in, keep them out, whether we're talking about voting rights, gun violence, gun rights, it seems as though when it comes to these things and many other things, they are anything but emotionally neutral. And whenever there is an attempted conversation around these ideas, it ends up filled with animus, distrust, at times hysteria, hubris. People speak in hyperbole, they speak with condescension, there's demonization, there's disrespect, they spew vitriol, and there's endless insults on both sides. And it seems as though we have come to the place, it seems as though we have come to the place where we have stepped beyond disagreement over issues. And it's okay to disagree about issues. We're all gonna disagree. It seems as though we have stepped beyond disagreement of issues and we've actually evolved into dislike. And sometimes even what seems to be a disgust of people with whom we disagree with concerning the issues. That's where we seem like we have gotten to. And this is true inside the church, outside the church. This is true in the world of politics and theology. And this is true when we talk about social issues. This is true almost every sector of our culture in the 21st century. It seems as though disagreement has devolved into a dislike and at times a disgust of the people that we disagree with concerning issues that are important to us. And that's where we are. And based on the ratings, it seems as though we can't get enough of it. It seems as though we love it. I mean, we just, every channel, all day, every day, that's where we are. This is the new normal. And the new normal is this. We can no longer talk to each other. The new normal is, rather, that we talk at each other. The new normal is that we talk about each other. The new normal is we talk over each other. And most of the time, we just talk down to each other. That's the new normal. The new normal is this. We talk to be understood rather than listen to understand. I want you to know what I think. And I want you to know how I feel. And really, I could give a rip less about what you think or how you feel or why you think what you feel. I really just don't care. I, I want you to know me. I want you to know my point of view. I want you to hear about my experience. I want you to hear about my past. I want you to hear about my frame of reference. I want you to hear about my worldview. And I'm not at all, if I'm honest, I'm not at all interested in yours. 
I, I don't care how you got to your conclusion. I don't care what your frame of reference was that shaped your worldview. I really don't care. I just want you to know what I think and what I feel. That's the new normal. The new normal is that we talk to coerce people rather than connect with people. Now we may be talking, but, but what you need to know, I'm not actually listening to you. Oh, I'm looking at you, but I'm not listening to you. See, I'm thinking about what I'm gonna say next. I'm thinking about what I'm gonna say next because I have this conversation all the time and I've got some well-worn lines and there's some good gotchas in there and I'm gonna make you look like a bumbling moron because you are a bumbling moron. And I'm gonna to try to coerce you, but I think you know, probably you're not gonna change your mind, but, but I'm gonna give you the best argument. I'm gonna give you my best play and I'm not at all really listening to you. That's where we are. The new normal is that we prefer monologue rather than dialogue. We prefer speeches. We prefer speeches from people we agree with. We prefer monologues rather than an honest to God dialogue, a conversation. We're just not into that. that that's not the 21st century. That's not America. That, that's not where we have gotten to. The new normal is that we talk to make a point rather than make a difference. So what I really need to do is I need to stir up the base. I need to talk to my community. I need to talk to the people who already agree with me so we can just get fired up. And I, I don't really wanna make a difference in a conversation or with what I have to say. So I, I then don't care what I say or how I say it. So I'm all about making a point and I'm not really at all about making a difference. Now you may not think this is a big deal, but I think that this is a big deal. Because I think that we are leaving behind the ability to have meaningful debate and discussion. We've replaced meaningful discussion and healthy debate with pre-rehearsed, pre-scripted sound bites. That's where we are in our world. Somewhere, somebody is in a room with a focus group and some really important influential people and they're scribbling down what should be said and then they disseminate it to all the talking heads to let everybody know what they should think and what they should say. And then when you flip from Fox to CNN to MSNBC, CBS, NBC, ABC, doesn't matter, 24-7, it seems as though both sides are saying the same thing on every single channel. It's pre-rehearsed, pre-written sound bites, tested and tested and tested. And no one deviates from the talking points. That's where we've gotten to. Pre-rehearsed, pre-scripted sound bites, well-worded posts and tweets. That's the new normal. The new normal is that if I'm on Facebook or if I'm on Twitter, if I'm on whatever social media platform that I'm on, and if I see someone who is of a dissenting opinion. I see someone who disagrees with the way I see the world. Immediately, I am just appalled. One, because they've passed through all the filters and algorithms that's supposed to keep the people I disagree with out of my social media feed. Because after all, social media is supposed to be about this echo chamber and all the algorithms is specifically tailored so that I only have to see what I agree with. That I'm only reading the people that I share a worldview with. And all the dissent and all the disagreement and all the discussion is filtered out. But, but when somebody, for some reason, penetrates the algorithm, I, I'm appalled, I'm offended, I'm insulted, and I unfollow immediately. Because I just don't want to hear that. I just don't want to say, I don't want to think about that. And this is why this is a big deal. I think we are losing the ability to negotiate ideas. We are losing the ability to negotiate ideas whether it's in the political realm, whether it's in the theological realm, whether it's in the social realm, whether it's in the area of morality, whether it's in the area of values, whatever it is, we are losing the ability to negotiate ideas in a fair, inoffensive, and constructive way. And I think that that is a problem. 
In this new normal, it is becoming less and less likely for us to talk to people who disagree with us, whether online or face-to-face. We just don't want to do it. We don't need it. We already know what we think. We already know how we feel. And we don't plan. We don't approach it as though we could possibly ever change our mind or concede high ground or think, hey, you have a point there. No, that's not what we do anymore. We don't have any meaningful discussion online or face-to-face. This is, this is where we are. We can no longer seemingly talk about positions that are really important to us with people who disagree with us. And that is a problem. I see this as a problem inside the church with Christians, outside the church with people who don't claim any affiliation with Jesus whatsoever. Th- this is where we are. We have disagreed and that's fine. It's okay. Everyone has the license to disagree, but we have taken it a step further to dislike and almost what feels like disgust of the people that disagree with us on issues. Now, I grew up in the church and I'll give it to you this way for those of you who may grip in church or you have enough churches to be dangerous, but I grew up in the church and disagreement was, you know, like a normal thing among, you know, Christians because, you know, there's denominations and there's different churches, there's different tribes, there's different groups, you know, people have different theologies. And honest to God, I grew up and it felt as though, I, I was raised Baptist, it felt as though the Baptists that I knew truly disliked the Pentecostals. Right? I mean, it really felt that way. It, it felt like we just not only disagreed with them, but we disliked them. I mean, we thought that they were crazy. We, we thought that they didn't know what they were talking about. And, and, and it seemed as though this existed in multiple tribes. We disagreed over baptism. You know, do you use all the water? Or do you use a cup of water? And not only do we disagree, but we disliked the people who disagreed with us. And the reason it seemed as though we disli- you know, disliked them is because of what we said and how we said it. We didn't talk about their issues. We didn't talk about the issue. We talked about them. See, here's where we are. We're in a world where we believe everything that the people whom we agree with says. Now think about that. We are predisposed, preconditioned to believe most everything the people we agree with says, while at the same time preconditioned to disbelieve, distrust, resist, everything that the people that we know we disagree with says. Now, what kind of stalemate is that? And how do, how do you obtain any kind of progress in any form of you know, living when things are that way? So we disagree, we disrespect, and we dismiss what each other says without any thought, without any logic, without any reasoning, without any respect. But it's worse than that. And again, this is true among Christians. As much, maybe sometimes more than, those outside the church. The new normal is this. Today, we not only disagree with one another, we seem to dislike one another simply because we disagree with one another. That's where we are. And for Jesus followers, that's why this presents a major problem for us. And that's the reason that getting sucked into the storylines of our culture getting sucked into the talking points of our culture, getting sucked into party platforms of our culture is a really big deal because the animosity is growing. The division is growing. The polarization is growing. Now we have all been divided up into our groups, into our communities, with our labels, with our signs, with our identification. We're divided up. Culture's done it for us, politics has done it for us. Culture, the church, society, they've divided us up. It's black, it's white, it's conservative, it's liberal. 
It's Republican, it's Democrat. It's rich, it's poor. It's gay, it's straight. It's pro-Trump, it's anti-Trump. It's legal, it's illegal. It's pro and it's anti. And that's where we are and we've been divided up and now we have been taught to dislike one another simply because we disagree with one another simply because we are different from one another. And this is a problem, if for nobody else, it is a problem for those who want to follow Jesus and try to live as Jesus. We have been divided up and we, many, are responding accordingly. So here, here's my question for you. Let's just get personal for a minute. Have your disagreements with certain people caused you to dislike those people? Now, before you answer and lie, I want you just to sit about, I want you just to sit with that for a moment. I, I don't even want you to answer. I want you to sit on that. I want you to contemplate that. I want you to carry that around for a few days. And then in the quiet of your honesty, I, I really want you to dig down and find out what the true answer to that question is. Have your disagreements with certain people and you've got disagreements with certain people. Come on, we all do. But have they caused you to dislike those people? Have you stepped beyond disagreement to dislike and perhaps even disgust because it seems as though to me now you, you may not agree but you have every right to be wrong but it seems like from my perspective that we have lost the ability to talk about this at the white house and we have lost the ability to talk about this at the congressional house and we have lost the ability to talk about this at the state house and we have lost the ability to talk about this stuff even at the church house but here's my question to you what if what if what if a revolution could ensue? What if things could change? What if you, what if me, what if we, what if we learned, what if we relearned to have a conversation with people who disagree with us, people who are different from us in our own house? What if, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just asking, what if sitting with people that you don't agree with, that you don't understand, what if sitting with them at a table could make a difference, could change things, could change you, could change them, could change us. And call me an idealist, even change the world. Now, I'm gonna tell you something about me you may not know. I love dinner parties. Can I get a witness? I love dinner parties. You may not love dinner parties, but you don't know how to live and that's okay. And if the only thing that you take away from today's sermon is, that, hey, I should have a dinner party, that's fine. So when your family says, you know, Sunday dinner, what was the sermon about? About having a dinner party. They're like, oh yeah, you go to the creek, don't you? Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what we talk about. We talk about those things. That you should have a dinner party. I love dinner parties because I think that they are some of the most entertaining moments in all of my life. Because what could be better than good food? I mean, I love good food, you love good food. I mean, what could be better than a table set with a filet of beef bourguignon? Mm. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Taste and see that the Lord is good, amen. Can I get away with it? <laughs> or maybe a Chateaubriand, cooked to medium rare plus. And the plus makes all the difference. If you don't believe me, try it. It's like getting saved all over again. <laughs> maybe it's roast turkey for you. Maybe it's roast chicken for you. Maybe it's a cheeseburger and french fries. Whatever good food is you, you know the only thing better than good food is good food with good company. And good food with good company makes everything better. 
I love dinner parties. Been having them for years. I, I, multiple times a week, a lot of times, we'll have a dinner party. I love, I love, to, I love to set the table. I, I love to go dim the lights. You know, got dimmers on all the lights because I can't understand why anybody would want all the lights on in their life. And don't be religious and quote to me that they love darkness because their deeds were, you're in the wrong church, bro. All right. But you know, you set the mood, you got to get it right. You, you know, you light the candles, you dim the lights, you set the table, you got the food. And there you are. You're sitting across from, alongside of friends. And not only that, imagine this proposition, perhaps future friends. You're sitting alongside of, across from people who may be your future friends. Now think about this, this is the table. I'm talking about, I'm talking about something so simple. I'm talking about something yet so profound. I'm talking about the table. I'm talking about a place where we can pull up a chair with people and we can have shared experiences. That we can share in the experience of conversation and dialogue. That we can enjoy good food and good drink together. I mean, it's a shared experience. I mean, is anything better than sharing a great experience with somebody? What is a great experience without sharing it with somebody? The table is a place where we actually come to new understandings. I mean, think about the excitement of sitting alongside and across of people and listening to them talk and watching their body language and watch how they respond to other people and watch what makes them laugh and watch what makes them emotional and watch what they're passionate about and just to watch that and to come to understand that I understand them better and understand her better and him better. I mean, this is incredible. This is the most human common ground that we have, food and drink. Now, it's been my experience, maybe not your experience, but I think that sitting around the table with people more times than not brings out the best in us rather than the worst in us. There's just something about it. There's something about sitting eyeball to eyeball, level ground, no one higher than anybody else, that we're all sharing an experience, all coming to new understanding. It's common ground, it's food and it's drink, and it is good for us. You can sit at a table with people, and you can sit at the table with people long enough that people you've had grudges against those grudges can begin to disappear. You've had something against them, you didn't like them, they bothered you, they irritated you, but you begin to just hang out with them, you begin to be with them, and all of a sudden, those grudges begin to be a story in a chapter that no longer is. Wounds, wounds can be healed. Things can get better, relationships stronger, love cultivated, all at a table. Think about how powerful a table can be. Some of the best moments in our lives could possibly be connected with the table. Now, I'm a bit of a geek, you already knew that, but I'm a bit of a nerd, uh, but, but think about this, think about this. Human beings are the only species on this planet which have incorporated ritual and tradition into the consumption of food and drink. Nobody else, that's you, that's me, congratulations. We are, we are, we are breaking new ground. We have connected ritual and tradition to how we consume food and drink. There's something religious, now think about this. There's something religious about food and drink. What was at the heart of the Jewish religion? Feasts and festivals, which at the heart of those were meals and feasts, table fellowship with one another. What was at the heart of paganism? Feasts and festivals, at the heart of it was food and drink because there's something innate within you and something innate within me when I'm paying attention to it that wants to share food and drink with other people. It seems as though we were all created for that. 
It seems as though it was the thumbprint and it is the thumbprint of God on our lives. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, here's something you need to know. Jesus loved gathering around a table. Jesus loved dinner parties. And if for no other reason, if you're going to follow Jesus, you too should love dinner parties because your Savior, your Lord, loved dinner parties. It's incredible. You need to know this about it. If you read the Gospels, and I think you should, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we call them the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. But if you read through those Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the one thing that you're going to find Jesus doing, I mean time and time and time and time and time again, is Jesus is either attending a dinner party or he's hosting a dinner party. But here's what I love about Jesus. He would host a dinner party at somebody else's house. How do you do that? Only Jesus. Come into your house. I'm hosting a party Friday night. Well, okay, come on, it's gonna be fun. And that's what we find Jesus doing all the time. And here's the thing, Jesus loved to get at the table with people. And oftentimes the wrong people. Oftentimes the marginalized people. And when Jesus, Jesus, he, he, he was at the table so much. Now you gotta get this because th this sets the stage for where we're going in the rest of this series. When Jesus sat at the table with the people that he sat at the table with, it fueled speculation. It got people talking. It sparked controversy. People were talking about who Jesus sat at the table with and the fact that he sat at the table so very often. Matter of fact, this is what you need to know. Matter of fact, the people, the people who were most religious, the people who loved God and country the most, the people who loved the scriptures the most, the people who championed the Bible the most, the people who championed values the most, they extended to Jesus a very clear reputation all because of the fact that he was always at a table with people. And here's what those people said about Jesus. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Obviously, Jesus Love to be at the table. And some people thought that he was at the table a little too much. They looked at Jesus and they say, Jesus is always at the table. He's always with people. He's always eating. He's always drinking. He always eats too much. He drinks too much. He's a drunk. He's a glutton. He's a friend. Look at who he's with. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And it drove the religious people crazy. It drove the pe people who love God and country, the Bible and values the most, morality and all the things that went with it. He drove them crazy because he loved the table. Someone said that when you read through the gospels that Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Jesus literally ate his way through the gospels. <laughs> this, is, this is Jesus, this is, our, this is our savior. He hung out with people, he loved to hang out with people in the margins. People had been excluded, people had been disinvited. He, he loved to be with people who didn't believe like him, who didn't behave like him. This is what Jesus loved to do. And it drove the religion of his day crazy because here's what they believed. They believed that sin was contagious. For them, it was all about clean and unclean. So they believed in separation and isolation from those who had been deemed unholy and unclean because if you're clean and you get with the unclean, then the unclean is going to make you unclean. If you're holy and you get with unholy people, the unholy people are gonna make you an unholy person. So what you had to do is come out from among them and be a separate, saith the Lord, right? And some of you heard that growing up. And that was the mantra of Christianity and the version that you were extended. 
So some of you, like me, there was a time in your life you burned all your CDs. I mean, you went out and you had this big religious moment and you took all of that godless, unholy, unclean music and you poured gas on it and you set it on fire. Because if you got near it, if you heard it, if you kept it in your car, it was going to get on you. It was going to get in you. So you deprogrammed all your radio stations from secular to Christian. There wasn't even enough Christian stations to fill up all six slots. So you put Caleb in there three times just in case you got tempted. You just, right? Because religion had this idea about sin, that sin was contagious. So the table was all about borders. It was about erecting borders and it was about erecting walls that kept the unclean away, that kept the unholy away, the unwelcome, the uninvited, the irreligious. The table was all about who could be in and who could be out. That's what it was all about. But not for Jesus. It was something different for Jesus. This is where him and religion parted ways. And we know so because of one particular event where Jesus just... He shook his fist in the nose of the status quo, in the nose of the power brokers, the religious theologues, the self-righteous. And he invited the most unthinkable, unwanted, unlovable person to follow him. And we find the story in Matthew because it is the story of Matthew. Matthew tells us his own story about how he became a follower of Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, as Jesus went on from there, and Jesus has been healing people. I mean, Jesus has been, you know, giving sight to the blind. He's, you know, he's making, you know, deaf people here again. He's even raising the dead. He is going to any length to prove just how much he cares about people. He even went to the length of healing a mother-in-law. It was unbelievable. Jesus said, I want you to know how serious I am. I'm, I'm willing to do even this. He's been doing all of these miracles. And then it says that he came up on a man named Matthew. And Matthew's telling his own story. Came up on Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, to tell you something about tax collectors, they were hated, they were considered traitors, they were considered immoral, amoral, they weren't, allowed, weren't even allowed to give testimony in court, they were barred from the temple, they were considered unclean on the same level as swine, as pigs. So in their faith, the Jewish folks believed that if they got near a pig, then the uncleanness of the pig would get on them. They also believe that if they got close enough to a tax collector, that the uncleanness of the tax collector would get on them. So these were people who had been disowned by faith, by their family, and by their nation. These were traitors of God and country. They collected taxes for Rome, and then they put a surplus charge on top of it. They kept the overage. They were very wealthy. They were franchisees. They bought into it. You had to have a franchise to be a tax farmer, and they bought into it. And they were very wealthy people, and they were regarded as enemies. They were enemies. And Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Now, what's telling is what Jesus says to him. Jesus essentially says, come hang out with us. Come on, just, just come follow me. I, 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 learn, learn some things from me. Just pay attention. Listen to what I gotta say, just follow me. And I think what it's also telling, what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, knock it off. Jesus didn't say, you're an embarrassment. 
Jesus didn't say, how could you? I don't understand what kind of person would. No, he didn't say any of those things. He just said, hey, follow me. Just follow me. And it says, Matthew got up and followed him. Now, why did Matthew follow him? Because evidently Jesus had not taken cheap shots at tax collectors. Evidently, Jesus had not made a punching bag of tax collectors. Even though it appears to me that Jesus didn't get on Twitter and just go to town on tax collectors. It seems as though that Jesus must have spoken in some type of respectful way with tax collectors and about tax collectors. Matthew followed because it felt safe. Matthew followed because he didn't feel attacked. He didn't feel belittled. He didn't feel insulted. Now, here's another thing to think about. He followed even though he didn't have all the information. He followed even though he didn't have all the answers. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you think that you gotta get everything in line in order to become a follower of Jesus, that you gotta check a bunch of boxes in order to follow Jesus, jump through some hoops to follow Jesus, that is not true. And whoever told you, they did not tell you what was true. Jesus just says, if you wanna follow me, the only thing you gotta do is follow me. Just follow me, just take a step and follow me. You don't have to self-reform, you don't have to change, you don't have to do anything in order to follow me. Just follow me. So he follows. Now I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the dismay of some of the other disciples when Jesus walks up to this traitor, this tax collector and says, follow me. Think, think about Peter. Think about Simon the Zealot, who was a political operative. Think about these guys. These guys are conservative. They are Tea Party, Freedom Caucus type guys. These are guys who believe in a strong national defense. These are guys who believe in the right to bear swords. These are the guys that are for low taxes and every once in a while they like to cuss a little bit. That's, that's, that's Peter, that, that's Simon the Zealot, that's kind of those guys. And Matthew, Matthew is a big government, high tax kind of guy. I think you should just be able to do what you want to do. It's your choice. It's your life. Go do it. And Jesus walks up to this high-tax liberal, big government liberal, this libertarian-like man by the name of Matthew and says, follow me. And the others were like, what? What? And they didn't know what to do with it. It drove them crazy. Now, this is where we need to reach into the text and pull it into the 21st century. Let me ask you a question. Who are the Matthews of our day? Who are they? Who are the Matthews of our day? Someone says, the liberals. It's the liberals. Oh, those liberals. The liberals are thinking, it's those conservatives. Those fundamentalists, right? Everybody's, everybody's got some ideas. Who are the Matthews? Who are the Matthews? Who are they? Who are the hated? Who are the traitors? Who've been disowned? Who've been marginalized? Who's been left behind? Who's unwanted, unloved, uninvited? Who are they? Because that was Matthew then. Who are they today? Who are they? How are you talking about the Matthews of our day? What are you saying about the Matthews of our day? What are you posting about the Matthews of our day? No matter who your Matthew is, what are you saying about them? What do you think about them? It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. What? At, Ma Ma at Matthew's house! What? Matthew's
Matthew starts following Jesus and Matthew thinks to himself, oh, I tell you the first thing I gotta do, I gotta get some of my friends, I gotta get them around the table, I gotta bring them over to the house. The first thing I need to do, I need to have a dinner party. You follow Jesus? The first thing he did when he followed Jesus, have a dinner party. See, there you go. Some of you are not the full follower of Jesus that you could be because you just refuse to have a dinner party. Think about how much more spiritual you would be if you would just perhaps have a dinner party. That's what Matthew did. And you know what? He has no friends except for the unloved, uninvited, the unwanted. He has no friends that really love the Bible. He has no friends that really believe, you know, in the God of Israel. He doesn't have any friends that are really champions of the temple. I mean, all his friends are pretty much like him. So he says, I gotta get them around the table with Jesus because for some reason, Matthew understood. Matthew understood that if he could get his friends at the table with Jesus, something good could happen. There's something constructive could happen. If he could get Jesus talking with his friends, that something powerful might happen. That minds could be changed, relationships could be built. He wanted those friends of his to begin to have conversations. Conversations with Jesus and he wanted Jesus to have a conversation with them. He invited his friends because he knew it would be safe. There was not gonna be a gotcha. There wasn't gonna be a moment where he was gonna bid for their soul over the, you know, the meatloaf. It was gonna be safe, it was gonna be comfortable. That Jesus knew how to navigate the table. Because he knew that Jesus would position himself as a friend and not a foe. When you decide to be a friend to Matthew and his friends, when you decide to be their friend, there's influence in that. When you decide to be their foe, you have no influence. I have no influence. And Jesus said that followers of Jesus, something about salt and light, something about we are supposed to be a light that shines, that we are supposed to be salt that makes a difference, that we are supposed to influence things. Jesus decided to be a friend and not a foe because there's influence in that. So there they are, they're having a party. I mean, they are eating, they're drinking, they're having a great time. They're at Matthew's house. I mean, he's rich, he's wealthy, he's got plasma screens all over the place, surround sound, Sonos, 500 series, unbelievable. And guess who's outside? He says, when the Pharisees saw this, now the Pharisees didn't like to sin, but they sure enjoyed watching other people sin. That was fun. Ah, bless God, we don't sin, but can we watch you? It looks fun. That's what they did. They, they were there. They were watching. Why? They asked, why does, your, why does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't understand it. Here Jesus is with unclean people in an unclean house, with misfits, undesirables, misunderstood, unwanted, uninvited, unloved people. He's with people who he shouldn't be with. These are people the religious people looked at and said, those folks are going straight to hell. Those folks are what's wrong with the country. Those folks, that's what's inviting the judgment of God on us. See, we, we, we haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. We still have the same talking points. We just dress different, a little bit more sophisticated now. But see, Jesus, and you don't miss this, and you may disagree and you may not like it, but that's okay. If you read and pay attention, you'll find out I'm right. When Jesus sat at the table with people, 
It was a grand gesture of acceptance. He was saying, I accept you. I accept you. I accept you. I'm not against you. I'm for you. We're at the table together. We're friends. We're not, we're not enemies. And the religious people couldn't make sense of this because they looked inside and they said, he accepts, he accepts them. And then religious people, we always want to start thinking, well, is acceptance affirmation? And is there a difference between acceptance and affirmation? And are they the same? Are they different? And what is Jesus doing? And is he accepting and affirming? Or is he... There Jesus is. He has empathy. He has empathy for people. Is that an endorsement of people? Does Jesus care about how people live? Does Jesus care about what people say, what people do? Does Jesus even have a real clear understanding of what he thinks or what he doesn't think? Because this is also very confusing. Is his empathy endorsement? Is his acceptance affirmation? They, they couldn't make sense of it. Is he condoning or condemning or neither or both? Or Why does he eat with them? On hearing this, it says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, Jesus said, what, what, what kind of doctor hangs out with healthy people? Jesus said, I didn't come to hang out with people who think they have it all together and who feel like they're better than somebody else. I don't, I don't care what they go by. I don't care what their title is. I don't care what label. I, I don't care. I didn't come to spend time with people who think they've got it together and they think they're better than other people who they don't think have it together. The Pharisees thought that they were right, but they also thought that they were better than people that they thought were wrong. Now here, let me tell you this, and you may not like me for this. Whatever you think makes you better than someone else, whatever I think makes me better than someone else, how I see the world, my politics, the way I dress, the way I don't dress, the people I hang out with, the places I go, what I eat, what I drink, whatever it is, that you use to feel as though you are better than someone else, God could give a rip less about it. It is a pile of dung. And if you need a Greek dictionary to find out what that means, Google it. Whatever makes us feel better than someone else, God's not interested in it. Self-righteous people not only think they're right, but they think they're better than those they think are wrong. And Jesus railed against self-righteousness. So Jesus looks at these scholars of the Bible and here's what he says. Go and learn. Y'all need to re-enroll. Your teachers need to become students again. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Better translated this. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Now this is a big deal. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're trying to be right. You enjoy being right. You're busy and obsessed with doing what's right. You're singing your songs, you're praying your prayers, you're fasting, you're offering your sacrifices. But I don't care because you're not loving people. To put sacrifice above love is to be obsessed with me and God. To put love over sacrifice is to be obsessed with my relationship with God and other people. To put sacrifice above love is to be consumed with my duty to God at the expense of my duty to love my neighbor. 
They misunderstood faith. They misunderstood the Bible. And the point was clear. When you misread the Bible, you will inevitably mistreat people. You may have a verse. You may have a chapter. You can hold it in your hand. You can post it. You can tweet it. You can preach it. You can sing it. But if it creates the inability for you to love someone else, you have misread what you read. And that was Jesus' point. And it wasn't popular. Matter of fact, they wanted to kill him for it. And in a short while, that's exactly what they would do. Because he had come to show a better way. Jesus said, I'm, I'm coming to reinvent your idea of holy. You want to know what holy is? The most holy thing you can do is to love someone else. The most unholy, defiled thing that you can do is to refuse to love another human being. Holiness in this new Jesus thing is about being indiscriminate in love and acceptance as God is. And here's what Jesus is going to teach us. Uncleanness is not contagious. Sin is not contagious. But love is. Grace is. Mercy is. But go and learn what this means. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to talk to those who are hurting themselves and hurting others. And I'm calling them into their best life to be fully, fully human. To exist the way their creator intended them to exist. Those who've been excluded have been invited in. And the reason that we know is Jesus sat with them and talked with them at a table. Here's where it's a difficult pill to swallow. Some of us spend our life avoiding the very people Jesus gave his life for. And it doesn't matter what side you're on. Many of us are busy spending our life trying to avoid the people that Jesus gave his life for. The text ends here. It says, then John's disciples came and asked him. This is John the Baptist. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples do not fast? Jesus even ticked his friends off. He had no better friend than John the Baptist or his followers. They're upset. Jesus answered, said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. He said, now's not the time. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people put new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus said, I'm coming to start something new. And it's different than the old. Old understandings, old ideas, old traditions, old approaches, old worldviews. The old idea of what is holy, what is clean. And we're not going to mix the old with the new. They shunned the leper, but Jesus, in this new thing, touched the leper. They declared the bleeding woman unclean, but in this new thing, Jesus allowed her to touch him. They excluded the tax collectors and the sinners, but in this new thing, Jesus invited them in and dined with them.
They rejected sinners. Jesus made them his friends. He didn't care about guilt by association or even his reputation. He didn't feel the need to clarify every position. Jesus invited people to his table, not to reform them, but to love them. They weren't projects, they weren't a means to an end. They were people. And when Jesus sat at the table with people, he didn't treat them like sinners, he treated them like people. It was a place for diversity for people different than him, who believed and behaved different than him. It was a place for enemies and sinners and women and prostitutes and Gentiles and anybody, even Pharisees. It was a place for dignity, where everybody was called by their name and not by their label. So how do we be like Jesus? Because isn't that the name of the game? Being like Jesus begins and ends loving like Jesus. That's where it's at. It's difficult to embrace diversity. It's difficult to sit with people we don't understand. It's difficult to listen to the opposing argument. But we have to regain the ability to sit with people. We have to regain the ability to have a conversation. Because it's easy to draw conclusions, but it's difficult to build relationships. Are you giving away influence? For the people, the people that should be at your table. Do you think you're right and you've got to the place where you think you're better than the people you think are wrong? Is that you? Is that me? Who's at your table? Think about that. Are they all white? Are they all Republican? Are they all Democrat? Are they all straight? Are they all conservative? Are they all liberal? Are they all the same socioeconomic as what you are? Who's at your table? Are you comfortable sitting at a table with people Jesus sat at the table with? We have to get this right. Are you really comfortable with inviting the people in that Jesus invited in? Perhaps we can move the needle on this. Perhaps we can make things better. Perhaps even we can change the world by learning to have a conversation at a table. Heavenly Father, Lord, with all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, Lord, this is heavy, it's uncomfortable. There's a lot of what ifs and what does that mean? And Lord, our first inclination may be to argue in our heads, to push back, to say, yeah, but what about? God, I just pray that we would just sit and ask the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts, to open up our ears, to open up our mind and let you do in our bodies. Let us, let you do within our minds and our hearts our being, what you desire to do. Let us process this the way that you want us to process this. And Lord, let us wrestle with it because we gotta get this right. May we be as willing to sit across from the table with people we disagree with and that we're different from as Jesus was. Help us 
to hear what we need to hear and do what we need to do in Jesus' name.